Joseph Parker, uh, who was a minister of the city temple in the late 1800s, tells his readers in his autobiography that his life was pure and that it was filled with faith and it was spilling over with hope, but then all of his beliefs collapsed when he was introduced to suffering. As his wife passed away, he wrote these very pointed words. He goes, In that dark hour I became almost an atheist, for God had set his foot upon my prayer and treated my petitions with contempt. If I had seen a dog in such agony as mine, I would have pitied and helped the dumb beast. Yet God spat upon me, and he cast me out as an offense on into the waste wilderness and the night black and starless. I, I thought when reading that, that that was beautifully written and a bit infuriating and a wonderfully honest confession from a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ as he inks his interactions with the monster of his personal suffering. Because that's really what this topic is, right? Suffering is a monster. It's a monster in the form of terrorism and abuse and depression and loneliness and brokenness and accidents and sickness and horrible mistakes and death. It's reality which undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith for both the believer and the unbeliever. Even for ministers like Joseph Parker, who believes his suffering as if God spat upon him. And it has always been this way, and more than likely, it will always be the great challenge to the Christian faith. One German poet calls suffering the rock of atheism. Suffering is the rock of atheism. Let me ask, is that true for anybody here today? Has it been a great challenge to your faith? Has it caused you to throw yourself on the rock of atheism? That there is no way God could exist with such horrendous evil. Have you struggled with the tension of good and evil or love and suffering? Because it brings all of us, every single one of us, to the same location of wondering why and wondering how and wondering when. No person is untouched by this monster. And as we said last week, it's suffering which is the universal language. Suffering and pain is a universal language that doesn't play favorites. Suffering does not play favorites. It isn't partial. It transcends all class and race and ethnicity and culture and gender and age and privilege. And the sobering truth is, like we said last week, is if we haven't suffered yet... Just give it time. So because of that, the guarantee that at some point we will be introduced to the monster of suffering, we're taking five weeks, the entire month of May, and allowing the book of Acts, which we've been in for some time now, to operate as a tour guide in the rocky, extremely rocky topic of suffering. And our goal, Collective Church, is far more than just explanations for for pain. Far more than explanations, intellectual explanations for suffering, even those are important, but really, honestly, to the sufferer, that would be like handing a cookbook to a a starving man. We seek something more tangible during these five weeks. We seek something more physical. 
We seek a change in this community. To be comforters or to be comforted, to actually know suffering. And so last week, as we sought to you know, dissect the purpose and meaning of suffering, and in coming weeks, we'll look at our response in, su- or in suffering, uh, persecution in the persecuted church, how to truly forgive, and a few other elements in this topic. But like I said last week, we mustn't view these talks as standalones. We have to view them as chapters telling a single story or idea. So what might not be answered tonight will hopefully be answered on another Sunday. And so tonight we stand before another aspect of suffering, and it's the idea of of willingness. I want to talk about the idea or the concept of what would it be like to face suffering willingly. To see what it'd be like to shake hands with death and suffering, not in fear, but in faith. Because as we will see today, there are two paved roads one can take in suffering. I mean, suffering is often the fork which divides the paths of victims or victors. And because I truly believe, I truly do believe, that the truth about how we suffer is just as climactic as the suffering we will endure. And one of the greatest models of that for us today is the willingness of Stephen. Does anybody remember or know who Stephen is from a couple weeks ago? Stephen has recently been appointed as the leader of these servant men in Acts chapter 6. And then there's this chosen seven who are starting to serve this early church community. And Stephen was described as a man who was full of grace, he was full of the Holy Spirit, he was full of power, and he had an incredible reputation. But sadly, it was that power and it was that reputation that got him in so much trouble with the same officials who got so frustrated with Jesus, the same officials who were just over it with Peter and all the other apostles. And Stephen's response, again, if you remember from his interrogation a couple weeks ago, his response, get this, is the longest recorded speech we have in the book of Acts. As well, it's the longest chapter in the book of Acts. And outside the Gospels, it's the longest chapter in the New Testament. So very simply, Stephen is very long-winded. I was thinking, does anybody have a friend like that? We all do. Like, hey, do you want cream or sugar? And like 11 minutes later, they haven't answered. And they're like, Donald Trump! Like, (laughs) cream or sugar? (laughs) So Stephen gives his defense in 53 verses. And we'll see that sadly, the end of his speech is also the end of his life. Thus, the book of Acts, hear me, the book of Acts will never, ever, ever be the same again. Because where these Jewish leaders are basically essentially going back to their old ways. Where threats and the occasional beating are things of the past. Acts now turns the page to even greater suffering. It's suffering and evil in the form of the monster of death. But here's the thing. Now here's what I want us to get. And here's what's just been blowing my mind all week. Behold this. Stephen was ready for it. Stephen was ready for death, to confront death. The great pastor and author John Stott says it much fuller than I can. He says Stephen was ready to be the first true martyr who sealed his testimony with 
his blood. How does one, how does one get to the point where they see the, the six-foot hole, open casket, where they see forthcoming pain and essentially mutter the words, bring it. Bring it on. How does one get to that point? I mean, Stephen is William Wallacein bravehearting this whole thing. He is ready. How does one get to the point where they can say, bring it to suffering? Because if I'm honest, my life entirely consists of avoiding, even avoiding the thought of suffering. I'm, I was thinking today, I'm deathly afraid of death. I, I just want to avoid it. So how does one get to the point where they are willing, like Stephen, to suffer? Why well, I actually believe Stephen's sermon gives to us that very answer. Now, we're not going to read all the verses, like I said, but I do want to point out certain truths that are driven down deep, which will only illuminate how one can become willing to suffer, how one could approach the fire. The first truth we see in Stephen's long, long speech is a God of presence. This only confirming where we ended up last week. We've titled this small little mini-series In Fire, which is to be a reminder that at times we will be in fire. But he too, but he too, the God of the Old Testament, as we saw in the book of Daniel, is present in the flames. So if you weren't here last week, we have a God who was there. We have a God who stands alongside of us. This is a God who is also bothered by our suffering as he identifies with us. Stephen shows us right from the beginning of, of, the, of chapter 7. Look at verse 2 in your Bibles. Right from the beginning, the God who was present. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And from this point, it feels like every 13th word is the name of God. Oh, and God this, and God this, and God this, and God did this. Stephen is telling the history of the suffering people, which is really the history of their saving God. I find this first, first truth, this idea, is where hope and faith has its start. You see, in and of itself, suffering is meaningless. In and of itself, suffering is meaningless. Purely an aftermath of our rebellion and rejection to God. So suffering all by its lonesome has no point. But when we put our eyes and our hearts in the God who is there, a meaning is now offered. Despite whatever our situations or our friends or our gut may say, however bleak and horrible the circumstances may be, we encounter him there. That we don't have a God who is present only in light or joy or God who shows up for Chuck E. Cheese and Christmas but present, a God who is present in sorrow, a God who is present in the pain, a God who is present in, in hospital waiting rooms, a God who is present in surgeries, in prison cells, in courtrooms, in fire, that he is there. Just as he is also prevalent in Stephen's brief history of God's redemptive plan. So suffering, and get this, as much as it has the texture of God's absence, God isn't here. I'm clear, clearly in pain. God isn't here. As much as it has that sort of texture or sound to it, it's quite the contrary. 
It's in suffering we can encounter the presence of God to the fullest. And even that idea stings the hearts and minds of these Jewish officials because God is supposed to dwell where? The temple. That these Jewish officials have, have missed the point entirely. That God is not confined to brick and mortar. That's why Stephen's saying what he's saying and making these guys very upset. Look at verse 48 of chapter 7. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? So the second truth that Stephen drives into the ground is a God of people. He's a God of people. I was reminded this week, um, preparing this, of Charles Spurgeon. If you're not familiar with him, don't sweat it. But he was an 1800s British preacher. And hear me, he's probably one of the most recent influential men in the faith of Christianity that there ever will be. I mean, he's up, up there. And in his room, he has a plaque nailed to the wall. In his room, he had a plaque nailed to the wall. It was the scripture reference, Isaiah 48.10. I have chosen thee. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Charles Spurgeon was no novice whatsoever when it came to great sorrows. It only makes sense in the great lengths he would go to have a plaque on his wall regarding the, you know, affliction and fires that he's gone through. Know this about Charles Spurgeon. I mean, his wife gave birth to a couple kids and then she was like bedridden the rest of her life. She heard, she heard her husband preach only a couple times and that was near the end of her life. He wrestled with massive inner demons so much so that those around him were shocked that he actually didn't go insane. And get this, this is insane. One time at a church service that would have been around 10,000 people, somebody had the bright idea to yell, fire! And the trampling, mad stampede killed seven people during a church service. And thus Spurgeon had these convictions of the things unseen that he was chosen in the furnace as he said these words. This is beautiful. It is no mean thing to be chosen of God. God's choice makes chosen men choice men. We are chosen not in the palace, but in the furnace. In the furnace, beauty is marred, fashion is destroyed, strength is melted, glory is consumed, yet here eternal love reveals its secrets and declares its choice. And when that reality is laid upon Acts chapter 7, I mean, I hope it comes alive. As this isn't a speech of supermen dominating the world. Stephen is not telling everybody about the X-Men doing all these great things for Jesus. It's a chubby little list of shepherds and kings and slaves and warriors who were in the fire, who were in the furnace, and became choice men imperfect in all of their ways. Yet, they are the chapter headings of God's story of how he uses sufferers to reach a suffering world. God has decided to use people for his plans, his purposes, not angels, not transformers, not mutants, not lions, tigers, or bears. People, you and me, us and them. 
See, Stephen's sermon grazes these lives of these giant patriarchs of the Old Testament. But here's what I want us to observe in Stephen's little overarching theme. More than anything, what I want us to observe is each and every one of these so-called giants of the faith confronted immense, immense suffering. Look at verse 2. We're introduced to a man named Abraham, the rich man who left it all behind to go to a land unknown, a man whose only desire was to have a child, and he gets one after much endurance a hundred years later, a man who cheats on his wife, a man with massive family problems. And it was after all of this that Abraham was known as a friend of God. Look at verse 9. Joseph. Are you kidding me? Joseph. We might as well call him Mr. Life Stinks. The guy had the worst life. He had the super rad coat, which gets covered in blood by his brothers, as they sold him into slavery. He was falsely accused of sexual assault and put in prison for years because of it. And then we read such verses like it says in verse 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But what? But God was with him. But what? But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all the household. Look at verse 20, the Mo man. Moses, I want us to notice this. You guys are quick today. You guys are on it. I'm proud of you. You guys see the word exposed in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Do you see that word exposed? It's in my translation, ESV. This is what he says. He, he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they might, so that they would be not kept alive. This idea of exposure was a command put upon the Hebrews to take their children and then lay them outside until they pass away. So whatever heat or cold or whatever else is outside would take its life. Moses was exposed until he was saved. And he was raised in Pharaoh's court. He decides to murder somebody. He's in exile for 40 years. And his story is nothing but mental affliction, physical affliction, and emotional affliction. Look at verse 45. Josh and Dave. We have David, another man who had spears thrown at him his entire life, considered the runt of his family, cheated on his wife, murdered the loyal soldier who was the husband of the woman he slept with, and witnessed a mutiny by his own son for his kingdom. Sadly, we don't have time to get in every single one of them, but their obituaries are filled with murder and incest, grieving, drama, prison, false accusations, and horribly foolish choices. And these are the ones that God has chosen, chosen so preciously and so perfectly out of the furnace to usher in his kingdom, his community, his agenda. And for each one of them, their high points, their high points did not come before suffering, but far after. Their flourishing came from the fire. Uh, Betty Smith in 1943 published the world's, probably one of the world's most influential books, 
It's called A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Anybody ever read it? Shannon, don't be afraid. You can raise your hand. It's one, I think it's like called Book of the Century. I mean, it's insanely powerful. And it's about a small family that suffers a great deal. But there is this tree in the novel called The Tree of Heaven. You remember, Shannon? Good. It's called The Tree of Heaven. It's this pivotal metaphor that represents how in severity things grow. How in harshness things grow and get stronger. That somebody can drop a seed on concrete and out of the harshness of rocks and pebbles, a lush tree will and does grow. I mean, straight out of the concrete soil. So I will go as far as, as, far as to say that it is with the sorrows of the patriarch's life that grew them into this tree of heaven. I mean, out of the concrete of the harsh suffering, this tree shading those around them and even us today. It makes me think of that famous quote, a clay pot sitting in the sun will always be a clay pot. It has to go through the white, the white heat of the furnace to become porcelain. And that last truth, and the last truth, and probably the most important for us today, is a God of providence. So we have a God of presence, a God of people, and a God of providence. See, Stephen is willing to confront his suffering, even his own death, because he preaches a sermon which so easily cracks and frustrates the enemy, but so easily builds him up. Because it's about a God who is providential. This doctrine is... That is the understanding that God sustains the very world he spoke into existence. And like the maestro, he directs and orchestrates its every move. He knows the length of every blade of grass in this world. He can tell you the weight of every pebble and stone on the planets. He tells the wind which way to blow. I mean, Charles Spurgeon, again, his poetry in God's providence and sovereignty. Get this, this... This will show you just how providential our God is. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of the sear leaves from a poplar is fully ordained as the tumbling of an angel, of avalanche. Excuse me. That is the God who was there in the fire. See, it's one thing, like we discussed last week, to know that God is present in the fire. But it's another thing to know what the God who is present in the fire is capable of within our suffering. What is this God capable of within our suffering? And to ponder his providence, his sovereignty, is to evoke not only humility and wonder, but trust. Especially trust in fire. In Stephen's speech, every time he speaks of God, he speaks of God's like orchestrations, God's providential hand. I mean, quite literally, I went through and counted the words in these verses. It's that God removed, or God spoke, or God was with him. God granted, God gave, God sent. God raised up, God turned away, God drove out. Never do we just see, God ate popcorn and watched. 
Never. God's sovereignty, God's providence, when it intersects with our suffering, when it intersects, that's, hear me, that's one of those rock the boat moments as we discussed in great length last week. I mean, there is no easy answer. But what we can take away from it today is that God's providence, His authority and sovereign design for our lives includes suffering. God's providential design for our life now includes suffering. Now remember last week, God is not the designer of our suffering. Sin has conjured that up. But God can and does use it for redemption and for salvation and for growth, for whatever He desires. For God never creates suffering for our growth, but it surely is the greatest cause of our growth in our life. Friends, no one will be able to ever face suffering and come out as porcelain unless this is their reality. I mean quite simply and seriously, is this your God? Is this our God in fire or in suffering? See, I think most of us, it's almost sometimes kind of simple to go, okay, an invisible, everywhere present God is in our suffering. Got it. But it depends on the God you're bringing with us or thinking in our mind who is actually there. Even for, for Christians, it's so easy to think that, oh yeah, the God who was there is a God who was mad at me and I mean, thus I, I suffer. Or the God who is with me in pain is a God who is far too weak to stop the suffering. Or perhaps the God present in pain is far too limited or arrested. Or perhaps this God who is there with me in suffering is far too evil. Thus these things are happening. Please get this. Please. Suffering can and often does expose what we truly believe about God. Suffering can and often does expose what we truly believe about God. Suffering exposes our deepest theology. So yes, where our faith may seek understanding, it does not operate the everydays by understanding. It does not operate the everydays by understanding the, the providential ways of God. That is, that is impossible. The confidence for you and I, Christians, and the confidence you can have if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus is that God is utterly in control, that God is utterly trustworthy in character and promise. See, that God is in fire with us is also sovereign as he rules over all. The God that is in fire with us is providential as he rules and plans all. And it's this present God, as we saw last week, which brings the praise and rejoicing. We briefly introduced Job last week. If you guys remember, the man who deserved suffering the least and endured it the most. Job, who only in a short verses went from having living, healthy children to deceased children. Job, who within moments was flourishing with livestock and land to desolate. Yet, in the first chapter of Job, in this horrific, horrific suffering, he praises. In the first chapter, it doesn't get, take to like chapter 16 from like, all right, I came around. Within the first chapter, 
Job rejoices and praises. Why? Let's look. Job 121. It says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Naked I came from my mother's womb. You're welcome. That's, yeah. And naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Providence, providence, providence. God plans, God designs, God uses sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. What? And then what happens? What? May the name of the Lord be praised. May the name of the Lord be praised. God in his providence has foreseen all of this suffering, all of our suffering, and it does not eliminate our tragedies. And actually, if we can be honest, for so many, it intensifies them. But to trust in a providential God ultimately means the words of Romans 8, Romans 8 in the New Testament doesn't bring confusion, but comfort. Let me to read it to you. And we know that for, the, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Can we just do a side note real quick? Can we please be a community that never uses these verses when our community is in the midst of mourning or in the midst of grieving? These verses sadly have been so applied and it's acting way more like salt than it ever has acted like a bandage. I'm sorry you're grieving. You know God, God's going to do something. These verses come later, and these verses come now, as we try to understand a providential God, that God has a plan for all of this. Stephen, who knows intimately his providential God, knows that whatever suffering may follow his message, redemption is imminent. Whatever can come of what you can do to me after I'm done talking, redemption is imminent. That all things will work together for good according to his purposes. And it's this type of trust in this providential God which leads him and us to areas unknown, even to the point of speaking so sharply to crazed executioners. Stephen was undetoured by what coming suffering he might receive. I was thinking as a pastor in this church, this is my longing for us collective, that we may be undetoured by any coming suffering. What would it look like now to not only be ready, but get to the point where we are willing? I'm going to be honest, I don't know if I'm there yet. I don't know if I could answer this question. Am I willing to suffer? That sounds pretty rough. But I want to be. I really want to be there. Much like Stephen. I want to accept it willingly. A very old author by the name of Thomas Kempis says it this way. There's nothing more acceptable to God, nothing so conducive to your soul's health in this world than willingly to suffer for Christ's sake. 
And then Stephen ends his sermon in the most gentle way possible. Look at verse 51. He's very kind, very slow to speak, and he says, you stiff-necked people. Essentially, you stubborn, stubborn. I'm picturing him doing this. Stubborn people. Uncircumcised in your heart and ears. You heathen of hearts. You fake, unchanged pagans. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. Essentially, you follow in line. Just as the messengers have been killed, you're the ones who have killed the message. The entire purpose of our fathers, and if you look back over at Acts chapter 7, Stephen was very generous with saying, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers. Abraham, the patriarchs, Moses, David. All of them have been racing towards one man, that being Jesus Christ. And you crucified him. Our entire history is about getting to one man and you killed him. The one who suffered the most agonizing death the world has ever seen was done by your hands. And when these men heard this, they wept and repented and started serving in the local church's kids ministry and got involved. And it was just a beautiful day. Look at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. They're chomping and grinding the bones in their mouth. Verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. See, where Stephen was willing to confess and die for his Savior, Jesus now too stands and confesses Stephen before the Father. What an oasis in this horrible moment. What a sweet moment in such a mournful time. Look at verse 56. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's this very methodical, creepy moment where they have time to take off their jacket and lay it at the feet of Saul, who we'll get to know very well soon. I mean, it's not like this anger, quick motion. I mean, I just feel like it's this methodical, we've had enough moment. And as they were stoning him, as they were stoning him, he called out, revenge! He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The entire history of Stephen's speech is a harsh, harsh, harsh reality. There was no decorating. There was no doctoring up. It's a story of God, and it's a story of God's people. It's verse after verse of suffering. And Stephen models for us something that is like a siren to our hearts, that his thoughts did not dwell upon the suffering, that in those moments his heart, his words weren't about the stoning, but upon his Savior. If you're suffering tonight, or know somebody who is, or you can remember in times past, where did your thoughts go? Upon whom do they dwell? In times of pain, what rules your heart? What words do we preach to ourselves? Stephen, as much as he preached this message to the officials, he was preaching to himself the truth of a providential God. And he didn't preach some sort of spiritual anesthetic or escape routes for suffering. He didn't tell us how to deny our reality. Hear this, friends, collective church. Biblical faith never requires that we ever, ever numb ourselves to what we're facing. Stephen surely didn't. Stephen didn't shun it, shun it, but, but, but he welcomed it. Suffering is the full embrace of not what we truly, excuse me, let me say this. Suffering is the full embrace of what we truly have, not the denial of what we lost. I want us to get this. Suffering is the full embrace of what we truly have, not the denial of what we have lost. Hear this. The value of suffering isn't removed from the pain we feel, but in what the sufferer makes of it. See, it's in sorrow that we discover and rediscover and rediscover and rediscover the things which really matter over and over again. We discover life. I want, I want us to get We discover life. When horrible things happen, it cannot steal our life because your life isn't this or that. It's a person. Christians, your life isn't this or that. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. If you don't follow Jesus, if you do not follow Jesus, if you reject the God of the Bible, when suffering strikes and pain and loss roars, may I ask, please may I ask, What in those times is your redemption? What is it that gets you through it? Do you feel as if you have lost everything and just say, okay, I need more energy. I need more strength. Can I take it a step further? Is there any stiffness of neck or stubbornness in your hearts regarding this providential God? There was in mind for years I told you my story last week of masses of massive abuse within our home. And I had a stiff neck towards God as we went to these Sunday morning churches and whatnot, rejecting and pushing away and rebelling against this God who's apparently there. Hear these words as I have so learned to cling to them that life is not found in anything else but Jesus and Jesus alone. See, we can be super pumped on our vocation. We can be pumped on our family and our bank accounts and our friends and our health. 
about this upcoming gig, role, part, opportunity. Thankful for those loves and those likes which are in our life, but none of these things can give life and life eternal. If they could, then what in the world did Jesus come for? None of those things lost means the loss of our everything. That being life, which is in Christ Jesus. Hear me, he is yours forever. Christ's words ringing in our hearts and minds. He goes, I am the way, I am truth, I am life. Suffering on our every days is like a cannon blast announcing where life is to be found. So in dark moments when life just seems pointless, Jesus shows us over and over again, your life has not ended. In suffering when he goes, I don't even want to carry on, Jesus shows us your life has not ended. And if this is true, if this is true, and this is our reality, can any of this bring us to the point where we can say, as much as I hate, hate, hate suffering, am I willing nonetheless? Can any of this understanding of God and his plans and the way he redeems and who he is and how he is there and inseparable, can any of that take us going, I hate this suffering, but I'm willing nonetheless? I'm so struck by Stephen's little narrative here. I mean, it was Jesus in his times of suffering that he saw most clear. It was Jesus who was so clearly present in his times of pain. It was Jesus who cast out his arms as these officials, as these enemies cast stones and crushed his skull and the bones of his body. And it was in that moment for Stephen that the willingness to suffer like his Savior suffered was worth every moment of it. Amen? Let's pray.